Fellow citizens of the Senate and House of Representatives, I embrace with great satisfaction the opportunity which now presents itself of congratulating you on the present favorable prospects of our public affairs. And so began the first State of the Union speech given by President George Washington on January 8, 1790 in Federal Hall of New York City. The State of the Union Address is a communication from the President to Congress in which the Chief Executive reports on the current condition of the United States and provides proposals for the upcoming legislative year. The address originates in Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution. Over time, the State of the Union Address, which has generally been given to a joint session of Congress at the end of January or the beginning of February, has evolved considerably. Presidents George Washington and John Adams delivered their message to Congress in person, but President Thomas Jefferson abandoned the practice instead, opting to send written messages that would be read aloud before Congress. This precedent was followed for well over a hundred years until becoming a contemporary tradition with Franklin Roosevelt. Whether it was James Monroe outlining foreign policy ideals, Abraham Lincoln speaking to the moral necessity of ending slavery, George H.W. Bush calling out the axis of evil, or George Washington's admonition that, quote, the welfare of our country is the great object to which our cares and efforts ought to be directed, unquote. We have looked to the commander-in-chief to share principles, ideals, and ideas, to inspire us and to direct us, to have us look back and to strive ahead. In recent decades, no matter the president, no matter Republican or Democrat, no matter in times of peace or times of war, no matter our nation found in abundance or in need, a constant refrain has been echoed in these addresses. The state of our union is strong. Do you feel like the state of our union is strong? Honestly, it feels much more like the state of our union is divided. Divisions abound. Republican versus Democrat conservative versus liberal, white versus black, and probably, worst of all, Brady versus Mahomes. So the truth is that the state of the union is not strong. Many are angry, disappointed, scared, depressed, and anxious. It's even happening within our church, and opinions abound about how to fix this battered and bruised union. We struggle to find answers. How do we come to a place where the words, the state of the union is strong, does not ring hollow? Well, if I were a politician, I'm sure that I would come up with all sorts of ways to convince you that I had the answers. But thankfully, I'm not a politician. So I'm not here to opine about politics and government. I'm a pastor. And as such, I'm not here to share solutions that could be found in government or in laws and I don't think that answers can truly be found there anyways. But I'm also not here to ask the question, how is the state of the union? But to ask, how is the state of your union? This morning, we will explore the state of our union with Christ. Let's begin in prayer. Father God, 
there is perhaps nothing that is more central to who we are as followers of you than to be in Christ, to be in union with you. Father, when you laid this upon my heart weeks ago, Father, I did not really understand the journey that you were going to take me on. And Father, I just ask that you would just speak loud and clearly here. Father, I have nothing to offer. But your word, your truth has everything that we need. And so I ask, Lord, that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. Father, as Pat and the the team just sang, we sang together, touch my lips with a coal, Lord. Cleanse the words that I speak. We need to hear from you this very morning. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way amongst us. Touch hearts, Lord. May ears hear, may eyes see your glory and who you are. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we speak of union with Christ. How many of us know what that really means? Charles Spurgeon once said, There is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. Union with Christ is the center of our salvation and our sanctification and central to all of our deepest joys in this life. This morning we are going to be looking at Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 to better understand our union with Christ. My goal this morning is to challenge us and to encourage us to take a dive into the deep end of God's grace so that we can rightly ask ourselves, how is the state of our union with Christ? I want to start off by reading this portion of scriptures together. You can turn with me to Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and to the praises and glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. That's a lot to chew on. (laughs) We'll start off here by sharing about Henrietta Hetty Green. Hetty Green was a woman who lived in the late 19th century. She was a frugal woman, to say the least. She lived in a series of cheap rental apartments and rooming houses so she could avoid paying real estate taxes. She was known to carry a bucket of dry oatmeal, which she would mix with water and eat cold or heat on the nearest radiator, not wanting to waste money heating water on a stove. She wore one old black dress and undergarments that she changed only after they had been worn out. When her son had a leg wound, she searched for a free clinic and then refused to pay for medicine, 
ultimately leading to her son's leg being amputated. Now, that's a cheap woman. But the fact that we are talking about her some 105 years after her death means that there must be a rest of the story. And there is. As it turns out, Hetty Green was an investing genius. She was a successful businesswoman woman who dealt mainly in stocks and bonds, real estate, and invested heavily in railroads and mines. As a savvy investor, she bought low and she sold high, amassing a fortune worth over $100 million at the time of her death. That made her the richest woman on the planet. In today's dollars, that would be worth over $2, million, $2 billion, excuse me, Now, here's the richest woman in the world, and she would wear her clothes until they were threadbare. With all the money that she had accumulated, she wouldn't turn on the stove to heat up a pot of water or pay for proper medical care. She had all the resources of the world available to her, and yet she acted as if she was in poverty. She chose to live like a pauper. Do you think that sometimes we do that too? In, that passage, in this passage of Scripture, Paul is reminding us that all of the resources of heaven are available to us. But how often do we live like spiritual paupers? As believers, we are spiritually malnourished, even though the great storehouse of God's nourishment and resources are available to us. The book of Ephesians has, called, has been called the Believer's Bank and the Treasure House of the Bible for this very reason. But here's the difference between Hetty's bank account and the riches of God. Hetty was actually right. If she turned on the stove, it would cost her money and that would come out of her bank account. Her wealth would decrease. But for the believer, those who are found in Christ, God's heavenly resources are such that they can cover all of our past debts, our present liabilities, and all of our future needs. And all of that is accomplished without ever reducing the heavenly assets that are available. There is no reason that followers of Christ should ever be deprived, malnourished, or spiritually impoverished. Christ is the source and the guarantee of every spiritual blessing we have. And that is because we have access to all that he has and all that he is just by our nature of being in union with him. But do we truly live that way? So often we pray for those things that we have already been given as followers of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that it's bad to pray for these things, but how often do we pray for love when in Romans 5 we know the love of God has been poured out within our hearts We pray for peace, although Jesus said in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. We pray for happiness, we pray for joy, although Jesus tells us in John 15, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And we pray for strength, even though the word tells us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. By nature of our relationship with Christ, we have been granted everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his glory. Now, the truth is we could park here all day. 
but we need to move on. The second point here that we find in verses 4 through 6a is our identity is found in our union with Christ. Let's read 1, 4 through 6a. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Our world today is so caught up in identity. Identity for much of the world defines their values, purpose, and their position. This drives so many to seek understanding drawn from ideals and values that are somehow defined by their identification with certain groups, be it cultural, racial, ethnic, religious, political, social, biological, sexual, economical, and any other method they choose to pull from. This desire for identification is in the hopes that by identifying where they came from, they would know where they are and perhaps even know where they're going. In seeking understanding, the journey inevitably leads back to more self-exploration, resulting in the need to identify oneself in a more and more complex way. These longings are driving people to seek out books, podcasts, social media, and a whole plethora of other sources in their searching for meaning, value, and identity. All this is to convince themselves that they're all right. The challenges that they face and the difficulties that they encounter are the result of somebody else who doesn't respect and celebrate their self-identification at best, or is actively demanding, demeaning, and destroying them at worst. The problem is that these efforts at self-identification are fleeting. Guilt, fear, depression, and anger may temporarily be mitigated. They may be suppressed, but only for a moment, requiring them again to look internally and identify themselves more and more with others who are likewise guilty fearful, depressed, and angry about something, about everything. But in all of this, there is one source that is so often ignored. In fact, it is mostly ridiculed. And that is the source of identity that we all need, God's Word. This is why Paul's words here are so important and so incredibly powerful but before I go on, I want to take a moment and deal with this text rightly and appropriately. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, very clearly writes that God chose us, that he predestined, or another way of saying it, he predetermined that we would be saved. I do not want to get into the theological weeds here, so without getting into the merits of any particular doctrinal position, I have found what pastor and teacher John MacArthur wrote in his commentary on Ephesians to be very helpful. Here's what he wrote, quote, man does have a will, a will that scripture clearly recognizes. Apart from God, man's will is captive to sin, but he is nevertheless able to choose God because God has made that choice possible. Yet the Bible is just as clear that no person receives Jesus Christ as Savior who has not been chosen by God. 
God's sovereign election and man's exercise of responsibility in choosing Jesus Christ seem opposite and irreconcilable truths. And from our limited human perspective, they are opposite and irreconcilable. Since the problem cannot be resolved by our finite minds, the result is always to compromise one truth in favor of the other or weaken both by trying to take a position somewhere in between them. We should let the antimony remain, believing both truths completely and leaving the harmonizing to God. I truly hope that this is helpful. We'll put some of our minds at rest on this point because what Paul is sharing here is so incredibly important to understanding our identity in Christ. I don't want to get caught up in those weeds. In love, he chose us for adoption through Christ. It's because in and through our relationship with Christ that we are adopted as co-heirs with Christ of all that resides in God's storehouse. In In other words, our identity is understood from our union in Christ. We're adopted children. That is our heritage. That is our culture. That is our history. That is our experience. When the burning bush spoke to Moses, that was Jesus, by the way, what did he say? Tell them that I am sent me. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Over and over, Jesus spoke about being I am. His identity is clear. It was never questioned. What Paul is telling us here is that we share in this truth. That is our identity as well. Not that Jeff is the way, the truth, and the life, thankfully. But when I'm unified with Christ, I am unified in all that he is. My identity is in Christ. I don't have to go looking any further. In fact, my attempts to identify in any other way are an offense to this truth. I want to ask you a question here. What is your initial response when somebody asks you about you? Do you go immediately to tell them what you do for a living, share your career? How about tell them about your family your spouse, your children, maybe about your parents. How about where you're from, perhaps? You think about maybe they're asking you and want to see how woke you are, and so you describe yourself in all sorts of intersectional terms. If you talk about Jesus, are you more likely to speak about where you go to church, talk about your favorite Christian artist, or perhaps a good sermon that you may have heard? How often do you think about yourself or describe yourself to others in terms of who you are in Christ? Imagine with me for a moment that your father was a justice on the Supreme Court or your daughter was a famous actress or your brother was going to be playing in the Super Bowl this afternoon. If someone was to ask you about who you are, how easy would it be for you to identify with their accomplishments. How easy would it be for you to recount the moments in their lives that led to their success and your participation in it? 
What Paul here is saying is that our Father, who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, He is the high priest and He is the ultimate judge. He is famous beyond fame and He is the leader on the field of life. And He chose you. And he chose me to be his son. That's what adoption means. Now here at church, we have several families we're blessed to call part of our church who are incredible at fostering and adopting children. First of all, I want to say thank you. But I also want to take a moment and speak of the incredible truth of what is being said when you adopt a child. You're saying, I choose you. I know that there's a lot of emotion that is tied up in this, but I don't want that to be diminished of the incredible truth. I choose you. I choose you to be my son. I choose you to be my daughter. What love, what devotion, what commitment does that say? It also brings something to mind that the Lord laid upon my heart several months ago out of Psalm 139, 13. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. The truth that God chose my parents to be my parents is a reality that requires me to love, respect, and honor them. Of all those who have ever been born and all those who will ever be born, God chose me to be their son. I know that there's a lot of emotion tied up in this as well. But our identity in Christ, our union with him, draws us to the truth that leaves us to see the world around us through his eyes and with his heart so that we can do his work. So we have our every need is satisfied in our union with Christ. Our identity is found in our union with Christ. Now we're going to speak about our purpose is found in our union with Christ. Ephesians 6 through 10. With which he has blessed us in the beloved, that is Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. I'm going to give you the punchline here. Our purpose is our union with Christ. It's not just found in our union with Christ. Being in union with Christ is the purpose of every follower of Christ. So what does Paul mean here when he speaks of being in Christ? In his systematic theology, Louis Burkhoff defines union with Christ as, quote, the intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation, unquote. To be in Christ, first of all, means that we have a saving relationship with Christ and are brought into union and communion with him in such a way as we are in Christ. What is true of Christ becomes true of us. His grace 
and his resources become our experience and our possession. Now, during the marriage ceremony, when a man and a woman stand before the pastor, they come as two separate individuals. At the end of the ceremony, however, they are pronounced husband and wife. They are united, and the two become one flesh. The property of each individual becomes the property of both. But in our marriage and union with Christ, the glory exchange is far greater. Our sin and our guilt are imputed to Christ, and his perfect law-keeping and his suffering are imputed to us. What is ours becomes his, and what is his becomes ours. Because of that union that we share with Christ, the Father no longer looks upon us as sinful, but sees only the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. In verse 7 here, Paul says that we have redemption in Christ. Redemption is a legal term for the exchange of one thing for another. Throughout Scripture, there are six different legal terms that are used to to apply to redemption. I'm not going to go through all of them. Suffice to say that they refer to such things as acquittal, vindication, repayment of debt, cancellation of charges, reconciliation, and pardon. God's redemption of us from bondage to sin and death becomes real, and it becomes effective for us only in our connection with Christ. Without this relationship, without this connection, without the union with Christ, we are dead. There is no possibility of redemption outside of a relationship with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul wrote, For our sake he made him, that is, Father made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God in him. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We only stand righteous and uncondemned before God because of our connection with Christ, because we're in Christ. So how do we experience this day by day? Paul gives us the answers in Colossians 2.12, saying, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. So you identify with him and you die with him, and yes, you are risen with him through faith. So many people think that their sanctification, that spiritual, spiritual transformation and confirmation to the holy image of Christ is simply a matter of trying harder, pulling as hard as they can on the bootstraps of their moral being, resolving to be holier. However, one thing that should be clear is that Jesus tells us that we can only produce fruit when? If we abide in him. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. That's not simply an abstract concept for us. That's a reality and we must abide in it. 
Union with Christ is the fountainhead from which all blessings of God flow. Therefore, God's words in Galatians 2.20 are not an abstract idea or subjective viewpoint. They are an objective ontological reality for Christians. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So how does this play out for us as followers of Christ? What does it look like to have our purpose in him? Our purpose plays out in our obedience to what he calls us out for. Our full and complete obedience is made possible only through our union with Christ. Our, fe- our sanctification becomes not a concept that I think about and I aspire to, but an accomplished reality in which I participate. Holiness is not something, it becomes something beautiful and possible rather than it being dreaded and impossible. When we come to a place of greater understanding and insights, what do we typically say about ourselves? Do we say, this is so great, we have excitement and anticipation of what is to come, come next? I don't know about you, but all too often I hear myself saying, I must have been slow. I'm thick. I didn't get this quite before I should have. But think about what Paul says to us in Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained this, or that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Our daily discovery of who we are in Christ should drive us even deeper, even further, longing for and pressing on towards the prize of being in union and a deeper union with Christ. As we conclude, I want to challenge us today. Union with Christ is not an option if we call ourselves believers. It is a truth. It is a reality. It's a wonderful gift of the likes the world does not know but so desperately needs. Union with Christ has its source in the love of God the Father before the very foundation of the world, and it has its fruition in our glorification with Christ in the manifestation of his glory. The former has no beginning. The latter has no end. Union with Christ is from eternity to eternity. So the challenge is this. How is the state of your union with Christ? I want to encourage you and challenge you to spend time in Ephesians 1 and 2 this week digging into what Paul is sharing with us. And as you do, ask yourself this question. What would my walk with Christ look like? What would my life look like? look like if I truly got a hold of what it means to be in union with him. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, there is so much here that Paul is sharing. There is so much, Lord, that we have available to us, and and yet, Lord, it's shared so often we feel like spiritual paupers. We act like it. Lord, help us to 
understand the riches of your glory that are available to us. Help us, Father, to truly understand our identity can only be found in you and you alone. Father, help us to know that the call that you have placed upon our lives, the purpose that we have is to be in union with you. Oh, that we would get a hold of that, Lord. That that would bring us to a place, Father, of walking in trust. That peace would be upon our lips. That love would be every step that we took. Lord, I ask that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. I ask, Lord, that we would have your heart and your mind. And Lord, most of all, I ask for less of me and more of he. I just thank you and I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm alive because he lives. It's the only reason. So sharing with you, we are dead in our trespasses, set apart from Christ. You know, everything that I shared here this morning about being in union with Christ is only available if you are born again, only if you have surrendered your life to him. Now, if you don't know Christ, if you have not surrendered your life to him, if you do not find yourself in union with him, then please do not leave here this day without taking that step. This is the day of salvation. Come and talk to myself. Andrew will be down. There will be others here to talk with you and pray with you. That we would get a hold of what it truly means to be in union with Christ. Oh, that is so awesome. I want to ask a couple of other questions to think about as we leave here. Do you live like the storehouses of God are open to you? Is your identity known as an adopted, desired, chosen son or daughter of God? Is your purpose in life to be in union with Christ? As these are important questions. There's a lot of stuff that is going on in this world. There's a lot of stuff that is happening outside of these doors in your own homes. But there are no more important questions to be asking. When is this pandemic going to be over? When can we stop wearing masks? What's going to happen in our political future? All of those questions don't matter if these questions don't matter. My heart is, is that we would all, my heart is, guys, that I would take this seriously. And I want you to know, more often than not, I'm confused. More often than not, I struggle in terms of my union with Christ. Just ask my wife and kids. I don't have this down. None of us do. But let us have Paul's heart. Let's have Paul's heart to truly desire to be in union with Christ, that we would gain the fullness of that and that we would strive towards that, not being perfect, recognizing that we haven't reached that goal, but striving ever more each day to be there. What would that mean in our lives? What would that mean 
in our homes? What would that mean in our families? Love you guys. Have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the game if you're watching it tonight. I'm not going to tell you who I'm rooting for. I'm actually not. But (laughs) be safe driving. It is snowing out there. If you need any help uh, with your car, just let us know. But uh, please come and, and talk and pray with us if you need anything. God bless you all. Have a great weekend.